Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and different ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with the writer George Saunders. His first novel, after many acclaimed collections of short stories, including the New York Times bestseller, 10th of December, is called Lincoln in the Bardo, a kind of play for voices about the death and afterlife of Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, who died at age 10. It's one of the strangest, wisest, most wonderful books I've ever had the privilege and pleasure of reading. Welcome to Think Again, George. It's good to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you here. There are so many places we could start, but I, you know, I guess let's give people sort of an idea. I mean, this is fundamentally the story of the death of a child. That's kind of the fir- the initial impact of it. And yeah. I, you know, I have a nine-year-old son, uh, so like very early on, that hit me full force. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, what what led you to that subject? And yeah, well, for me, it, you know, it was just this this inciting image that. We were in D.C. many years ago, and somebody pointed out the crypt where he was buried. And they said that in the papers at the time, it had been reported that Lincoln had been so grief-stricken that he went in there and held the body. So as, at that time, right. I, I was a father of young kids also. So two things. One, it hit me hard, and two, I pushed it away. Like, yeah. And partly because it, it was just made me squeamish, and, and I felt, felt superstitious about it. But second of all, because aesthetically, it was I could just tell it was outside of my range at that point. I, I couldn't. You know, sometimes what I'll do is if I get a notion, I'll just turn my mind toward it, looking for an associated voice. Okay. And if that voice is right there, I'm like, okay, that's good. That's really how I how I decide. I see. In this case, I thought, yeah, I don't. No voice came. You know, I was very very much into a kind of contemporary, comic corporate speak, and so it just was like that. You know. So anyway, so I waited many years. Yeah. And then through working on other things, nonfiction and 10th of December, especially that particular story. I realized that I could actually make somewhat earnest prose that wasn't lifeless. It, it, I guess it's really hard to, you know, to write about a subject like that without descending and without going, I mean, because it's, especially if you know what it might, you know, if you have that fear in you of what it might be like mm-hmm. to lose a child, to, to go into that without sentimentality and sort of broad stroke, yeah. you know, watercolor yeah. But that's always the trick, you know, you, I think anything you set out to write it's already fraught with peril. You know? right. If you say, I'm gonna write this thing, it's like, you, in your mind, you, you can imagine all the readerly objections. So that's actually your best friend. So then you're, you're like, I, I, I had a conversation with a movie producer once and I was writing a script and uh, it, it involved a scene that was a little more domestic than I can usually manage, you know? And I, okay. I said to the guy, I said, you know, if we, I, I'll write it, but if, I, if we film it this way, and if we film it wrong, it could really suck. You know? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. He goes. How about we don't film it so it sucks, you know? Right. So, so if you're aware of the possible suckiness, you can at least you know negotiate with it a little bit. Right, right. Well, and you and you totally avoid. I mean, this is the way this book ended up being structured is very different from anything else I can think about. Like, how did you arrive at you know what you have on the one hand, you have a chorus of voices of dead people in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm guessing that like some of those, a lot of those people were actual names on the graves. No, and that's, no, no, you no made I, that I had the, I had okay. the list, and then I thought, you know, at some point, if you're making a work of fiction, that has one goal, and it's not verisimilitude. Okay. Know? So I, so I had it all, and I had the cemetery kind of mapped out. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. Oh, nice. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, but so you've got that on the one hand, uh, the conversations between these people that are in this sort of in-between state, and we'll talk a little bit about the mm -hmm. bardo in, in a second um, and what that, what that means. And then on the other hand, you tell parts of the story of, you know, Willie's death and the, the aftermath through excerpts of, you know, firsthand accounts, bio, uh, biographies, autobiographies, historical. Right. How did you, you know, end up with that structure, and what was that like? Yeah, you know, you know I'm I'm trying to find a way to not lie. That the that's just the answer is so kind of, I don't know, new age or something. But but okay. my my approach to writing since I had a I had a breakthrough with my first book finally after many years of not having a breakthrough, it's so in, it's intuitive and it's iterative. So the idea okay. is, I try to make very few decisions in advance and try to make very few decisions based on some kind of conceptual scheme or some kind of... Okay. So in other words, the, the idea is kind of to surrender control to the text and to recognize that a text actually thinks through form, right? So that means you have to sort of say, I'm going on a date, I don't know what I'm going to do, right. but I'm going to trust my instincts. And I'm going to trust that, segueing from the date to the book, yeah. that if I do, if I can find a way mechanically to input my instincts thousands of times, the result is going to be much more complex than the prefigured thing. So in this case, I mean, you know, there were a number of kind of interest, maybe not interesting, but crisis points where I went, okay, ghosts, or okay, we're going to use the historical attributions. And I have kind of, you know, talking about a book a little, I've managed to develop some shtick about that. Okay. But every so often I remember the actual thing, I'm like, that's kind of, it's a little bit bullshit, you know? Okay. I mean, they, it is really just going in every day, and I try to read from the beginning to where I've stopped, just reacting at speed. Yeah. And there's a certain quality of intuition that I can feel, almost like a pitch, you know. When I feel that, I do it. Even if it makes no sense, even if it contradicts something else I've figured out, it, it, there's a certain feeling of preferring, almost like the optometrist thing, you know. Right. If I feel that, I know by now, after all these years, that I got to do that thing. I mean, one example in this book was the attributions are funky. That At one point in the book, I had the attributions at the top for the ghost dialogue, as in a play, and then the historical ones had the attributions at the bottom as they should be. Right. And that just bugged me. The fact that it looked wonky on the page from chapter to chapter, it just, you know. From, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that, right, and it took me a moment as a reader to adjust to that in the right. fictional characters where you had their names beneath, but then uh, right. I understood what you yeah. were doing. And, and I, I did it just because I liked, I mean, it's so self-indulgent, but I liked the way it looked. And then I liked the fact that every single thing in the book was going to have the same format. So right. a little OC, OCD. But then, <laughs> you know, what I'm hearing from readers is that that disorientation that you talk about can seem to serve a purpose, which is, well, they're dead. You know, right, right, so right. so my so I guess I'm the long I'm saying the long way around that um, I have this sort of radical program of trusting that intuitive moment that is really hard to talk about, and I found that if I don't, I fuck up. You know, that's really interesting. You know? So I mean, and you've written screenplays as well, right? Yeah, uh, no, nothing that ever got made, but right, I have right, written them. Okay, yeah. but like that's a very different. Like I'm I'm right now trying to write scripted podcasts, and I'm, I had to just do a treatment, right, which right. is like, here's what all of the next, you know, here's what the first episode is going to be about. And I am nowhere near where you're at as a writer, but I, I like what you're 
the feeling yeah. you're talking about, which is the wandering into the unknown and right. just kind of like feeling your way through it. And I find that alt that other process very counterintuitive for yeah. that reason because you have to decide what every point of the narrative yes. is. Well, advance. that's a fun. I think it's an artifact of the commercial structure, which is you have to pitch it and get paid. And, right. and you know, in screen screenwriting, there's all that three act structure stuff. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think, and I'm saying this maybe based on the short story they've written, if if I follow that method, at the end it looks like three act structure. You know, right. three act structure is kind of it's sort of just almost neurological. I think you know, you 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 set it up, it develops, it ends, or whatever that right. is. But I know what you mean, and I, I actually I'm writing some TV stuff, half hour. And it actually does work better with some outline, and then you get the surprise quotient from how you fill in the outline. From the actual dialogue as you're yeah. writing it. Yeah. You say, you know, Frank falls in love with Sue. Well, you don't know how, right. you know. And also, I, I mean, I teach at Syracuse, and we have so many wonderful writers come through. Everybody's got their own, sure. their own method. I think part of it is you're gaming yourself. You're, you're taking from long experience with your own psychology, and your two or three strengths or weaknesses that have dominated your life, right. you're kind of gaming that. You're saying, well, given that I have this trait, this trait, and this trait, let me write this way. After the fact, the, you know, the culture kind of asks you to tell them what you just did. Right. But actually, you know, in a way, I suppose a really wise person with spine would just go, I have nothing to say. You know? <laughs> but, but that's not, but that's not right, me. Right, I like right. talking about it. But, right, right, yeah. right. No, but I understand what you mean. I mean, they, like they want the culture wants a secret sauce, yeah. and the the kind of writing you're talking about is the exact opposite right. of that. It's a, it's trusting right. and, and in, in the some process. Ways, the whole thing, you know, the 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 way we have to talk about it. You know, everybody's done it. You see a movie that blows your head off, and then after there's a little bit of respectful silence, and then you're like, well, I think it's about this. That's totally cool. <laughs> right, That's right, criticism, right. but I have found that in all these years of teaching and writing. You know, the unspoken truth is that the artistic mind is incredible. Well, you know, your mind on reading, if you could do a scan, I would guess it's pretty, oh, there's a lot going on, you know, to where you can be reading a text and everything is meaningful, even the page layout, even the semicolons. That kind of mindset is real, you know, it's right, real. Right. And I think we sort of, you know, maybe in our, I would say we're in a materialist phase and a literal phase and a reductive phase. In so, American culture right yeah, now? Maybe yeah, world yeah. culture, but yeah, certainly yeah. our culture. Yeah. So, so the materialism says, oh yeah, that was nice, now let's tear it apart, right. and, you know. Uh, and that's good, but I think it's, for me, it's really important to remember that the difference between a writer you want to read and you don't is not the ideas contained therein, although that's a byproduct, but it's actually the delivery system, which I think can be traced back to this into uh, some form of lurch, you know. That Einstein thing, I, I'm always quoting this, but it's lurch. Okay. lurch. Like, I, didn't, I don't know why I went there, but I went there. Uh -huh. But Einstein said that no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So that means if the story does what you planned, you just disappointed everybody. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about this afterlife that your characters are in. And uh, I wonder, would you be willing to read a short section sure, yeah, of the yeah. book? I mean, it's a little dim, <laughs> dim in here, but... Uh, this is Lincoln coming to terms finally with, you know, the fact that his son has died and, and having to let him go. And this is, and we should say, this is Lincoln actually doesn't, doesn't speak in the book, but this is a, there's a convention where if a character, of a ghost settles into your body, they can kind of channel your thoughts. So here we're hearing this one of the like ghosts. This is like his internal monologue. Right, his internal monologue, yeah. yeah. And here he's kind of going back and forth. Well, uh, he says, come around, sir, to good sense. I was in error when I saw him as fixed and stable and thought I would have him forever. He was never fixed nor stable. 
but always just a passing temporary energy burst. I had reason to know this. Had he not looked this way at birth, that way at four, another way at seven, been made entirely anew at nine, he had never stayed the same, even instant to instant. He came out of nothingness, took form, was loved, was always bound to return to nothingness. Only I did not think it would be so soon, or that he would precede us. Two passing temporarinesses developed feelings for one another. Two puffs of smoke became mutually fond. I mistook him for a solidity, and now must pay. I am not stable, and Mary not stable, and the very buildings and monuments here not stable, and the greater city not stable, and the wide world not stable, all alter, are altering in every instant. Not bad. So, that is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and, well, you should take a moment to say that. So, I want to then talk about the way that, the way that these dead people in the book, like, are in the graveyard. They, they mm. believe they are sick, or right. many of them do. This is a state of sort of delusional self-persistence mm. that they're in, which... That was nice. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it seems like the form that they take in some ways, or like how they exist in that place, well, for many of them is determined by how they lived. Right. This brings us to this issue, a question of the bardo, and maybe we can, you could just talk a bit about how they exist in this yeah. place. So, so my wife there? and I have been students of Buddhism for about 15 years, and I'm, I'm yeah. a pretty casual student, but really interested in it. And I'm at the stage where I know some of the ideas and have not done a very good job of actually getting them into my body. Okay. Like they always say, you have them in your head, but you have to get them in. So I, I know the ideas. Bardo is basically, it just means transitional state. So we're in one now, we're in the one between birth and death. But the one that people talk about is the one between the moment of your death and whatever comes next. So okay. in uh, Tibetan, if I understand it right, in Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's, it's a finite period and it ends in the reincarnation. And different people have different experiences depending on their spiritual development. Yeah, I, I said, well, I don't, I'm not going to be correct about that. Right. because uh, So I, I sort of used the word to trigger myself to think anew about death, you know, okay. not to just make it some purgatory or something. Right. But but basically, the, yeah, the idea in the but text... But it does is, have an analogy to purgatory it's, in a way. Yes, it's, it's, like, a little, it's a little more transactional. You know, purgatory, as I learned about it, was like, oh, too bad. Go sit on the hard bench until, <laughs> the, until the end of days, you know. Whereas this is a little more... And, and in some of the... Um, there's these things called delog texts, which are Tibetan narratives of highly developed people who died and their bodies were basically, you know, clinically dead for quite a while, like not hours, but even weeks. Okay. And then they would report back almost in this Dante-esque way about what they experienced. Uh, so, so the basic idea is I understand it, which is probably not entirely correct, but, you know, when we're here right now, we have these powerful minds that are always causing us problems, you know, yeah. or bliss. But, <laughs> most, uh, but they say that that's nothing because right now the body is tamping all that energy down and when you die it's like you just let a wild horse off a tether your body's gone and the mind r r runs crazy right. so that there can be a period of wild hallucinations which I think might correspond to heaven or hell I don't I don't know really okay but the salient point is that as you said whatever your mind tends to do today if a meteor hits us right now your mind's going to keep doing that but supersized. So that's right. one. So these ghosts are, are I don't, I kind of didn't call them ghosts because we didn't want white sheets, but sure, they're beings. Sure. But their thing is basically that they just are having a hard time moving yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, if I died right now, I'd still be like <laughs> self Googling in hell. Or, you know, I mean, <laughs> so I think that's. Self Googling yeah. in hell, yeah. yes. 
But so, so that's their thing is they basically carry over to this life. And, and these are people who, uh, you know, in this graveyard, there's hundreds of people who aren't there. They just went to their judgment. But these are the ones who are kind of particularly locked up and they can't, they can't move on. Your two main guys, you know, besides Willie and Abe Bevins and Volman, mm. they're all right. Like they're, they're compassionate, reasonably decent people, it seems. Like I'm I not think. sure what's keeping them stuck except that they don't, know well I think we don't know that they're dead really my take on it was that them. everybody in the the three main people in the book they're almost like you know like they're like New Yorkers you know, like, <laughs> like they're walking along like and they see a tourist coming like oh shit you know this, this don't look at them and so they're not bad but they're kind of they've been there a long time and one of the the, the sort of ideas of the book is that it's not so easy for people to stay you have to work right. at it and the way they work at it is they repetitively tell the same stories as I guess we all do about ourselves but in this case, Volman, I think he, he, he was trying to get his marriage consummated when he died. So that's his thing. He's still right. in, it's almost like he loved this young woman and uh, she finally consented that she might love him too. And then he died at that point. So he's kind of got that. And Bevins was a suicide who um, basically right. at the last minute, you know, I was like, God, this world is so beautiful. What am I doing? And he kind of locked him up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. So they have reason. They have some some reasons. Yeah, to and they're and they're not. I mean, they're kind of like if I if you know if I die right now, I've got a wife and kids and you have a son and you know. I mean, that's it's hard one, to let go of. Yeah, and in the abstract, you can do it. But I had a, an experience on a plane a few years ago where, where it looked you know one of the engines went out, and I, I always thought I'd be that kind oh, of guy wow. who's like, oh, everybody, let's sing. It's okay. We had a good life, and I was not that guy at all. I mean, the, the you were totally freaking out. I was quietly freaking out. Yeah, but the enormity. Well, actually, not even that. I just had all I could do was I was pure denial. Every cell was no, no, not now, not now. And there was I was sitting, you know, and I thought I got to get out of this body. Oh shit, you know. And and I looked at that seat in front of me like that's what's going to do it. Somehow or another, that's the thing that's going to do it to me. So in that mode, you know, the abstract conception that now I'm talking about quite slothfully on the road, oh, death, you know. Yeah. But in that moment, it was like, shit, I, I, do, I cannot give up. I, mean, I don't think I even got far enough to, to go to my family. It was just, I couldn't give up me, you know. And, and I was, at that time, I was meditating. Did, you, did your work come into it, too? Or no, was it just, no, it was just not George. even. I, I was just. I want to stay George. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. Didn't, I, didn't, I don't think I, honestly, I'm, I couldn't have remembered my name. It was the sheer panic of going, oh, this is happening, you know. I mean, at that time, yeah. I think I was meditating a lot, so I should have been ready, you know. Yeah. And I'm much less ready now. So, I'm, you know, to me, it's not, it shouldn't be a terrifying thing, but it, it's like if someone said, you know, you're at a great party, it ends at 11.45. Right. Well, that would color your, the, the kind of fun you would have. It wouldn't yeah. make it less fun, but it would make it different, you know. That's funny because yeah. I, yeah, I always, I talk rather blithely about death as well. Yeah. I mean, in the sense of like, oh yeah, I mean, I'm prepared, you know, right. if that right. happens. So yeah, I guess you really yeah. don't know until the, you're faced. Well, the thing that's, that was really <laughs> scary was that I think it would have to do, this is really nuts, it would have to do with the kind of mood you were in. You know, right. that day I just, uh, I was at the end of a book thing and I was just reading a magazine and I just wasn't ready. I could imagine being in a more heroic state of mind and, you know. Sure, but, yeah, you were so. caught up in, in the world at the moment. And yeah, or like, maybe even just not, just, you know, like some days you wake up and you're feeling good. Right. And some days you feel terrible. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, but anyway, the, so the book was really wonderful because at least nominally every day I was thinking about it a little bit, you know, thinking yeah. about death a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean... 
feel like so, I'm depressing you. No, but. not at all. Oh, oh, I apologize. <laughs> no, yeah, no, actually, no. my engineer always tells me about the sighing. No, I, I have a tendency to sigh. Sighing is wise. <laughs> there, there, are some, there are some Buddhist figures who they just cry all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Perhaps I'm on my way to mm -hmm. Bodhisattva. Um, they, you know, but it seems to me that the way that a lot of the people, ghosts in the bardo, end up escaping mm -hmm. is through an act of selflessness. Like, there's, which I don't, I don't know how much spoilers we should give no, away. No, I know. I'll tell you, that's a, a good, a good read because I, and I didn't know that. I didn't intend it. Yeah, I, yeah. I knew, I kind of knew. Okay, we've got the basic job is there's this young boy who shouldn't be there. Is he going to go on to right. reward? Him? So, uh, the, go back to this iterative thing that we talked about earlier. Working on the book really intensely for four years, and it's actually not that long. I mean, it, the form makes it seem longer, right. but it's only sixty thousand words. So working on that. You know, I'm I'm responsible for every phrase in that book, and in as I tweaked it, mostly for velocity or kind of just coolness, <laughs> that pattern that you're talking about emerged, which is that all these people who were kind of like, they were a little bit like, uh, yeah, like like New Yorkers or maybe like people who'd been acting in Hollywood too long, and not right. you know like, uh, the they ca the characters on Seinfeld or something, right, right, they trapped in there, not you know very cynical, yeah. yeah, but each one of them kind of had a moment, as you're saying, of of deciding, opting to have a positive intention. And then when you look at the pattern of the book, all that stuff, it's almost like uh, switches being thrown and it benefits this little kid. But the thing I'm still puzzling over is I didn't plan that and I didn't even see it until the very end, actually. It's just like okay. you you work through the, the thing line by line and there's a sort of a sub-wisdom that is there. I guess suppose it's in you, yeah. but you can't get to it. I can't get to it except through this revision. I could yeah. never have planned it, and if I'd planned it, it would have been, you know, much simpler than it is. Or yeah, it would have come out maybe forced in some way yeah. or whatever. I yeah. mean, it, it, but clearly that is what's happening, yeah. even though you, yeah. you may yeah. not have no. intended. And, and, I, and what happens with me when I finish something is I'm like, oh yeah, I do believe that. I just didn't know that, I, <laughs> that I, I'd never seen it up on his feet before. And, and that is, I mean, to my mind, that is the most wonderful and magical, like that's the reason to write, is yeah. that kind of discovery. Yes. Because it, what, it, what it teaches you is, is about the existence of this alternate mind, whatever you want to call it. And that's pretty heavy, you know. And, it, and then it, I think it, it can sort of move out into your real life. And you say, well, you know, if I meet somebody, do I do a version of first draft thinking with that person? Of right. course you do, you know. Oh, that guy, huh. You know, and, you, and you're doing it on, his, on posture or, what, or whatever you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, okay. And then this, the version of revision would be to actually listen to him, get to know him. Uh, look at his face, hear a story, then you, your uh, initial erroneous delusional approximation gets adjusted into something more real. So, so I, found, I found myself doing that in real life. It's a little clunky, you know, but to say, well, you're j just a distrusting of your first order Darwinian mind, which wants to make a rough scale model. It's very useful. I mean, if a truck's coming at you, you go, that seems sure. to be a truck. But we, we're capable of, of more nuanced thinking. And I think writing can kind of be... Um, a, a way to train ourselves to, or probably any art form, to train ourselves to. Yeah, I mean, it's also kind of an escape, I guess. I mean, this is another way of saying the same thing, maybe, from the tyranny of, of self or the idea of self. Like, you're sitting there thinking, like, I am this person who is now doing, I must craft this narrative yeah. or whatever. Right. And it's a way of reminding yourself that what's available to you is not this sort of black and white conception exactly, of like right. who you are. Yeah, and, 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 and those, that construction you're talking about, if it actually occurs via thought. 
so one of the, the interesting notions I've come across, there's a wonderful book called Our Pristine Mind by this lama called Orgen Choyang Rinpoche. I'm okay. getting his name wrong, but... Um, Tibetan. Tibetan. Yeah. And the book is basically saying that you, one of the big mistakes we make is we, we, um, we mistake our thoughts for ourselves, mental events for ourselves. And actually, you can sort of see that they're not, you know, you, right. they're like little brain farts, basically, you know. <laughs> right. And you think, oh, that's, that's me, you know. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so I think that, that's... Um, Something about doing art helps me to loosen up the construction of self that I habitually make. You know, I looked, I watched your um, 2013 commencement speech, mm. which was basically about kindness. Um, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about my her other hero, David Foster Wallace's mm. wonderful commencement speech. You know, and, and sort of this, I don't know what, what to call it, but a kind of uh, pushback Mm. that in a way both of you are doing on a kind of snarky, ironic, self-aware aspect of literary culture. Yeah. That like he, I mean, you, you're not the same guy, obviously, no. but, but he and, he's, and he's you. He's better. Uh, <laughs> no, um, no, but I mean, what I mean is I don't mean to lump you guys together, but both of you in different ways seem to be saying, you know, putting emphasis on kindness and mm. compassion and a sort of moral responsibility as a human being to be a decent person yeah. in an industry in a context that often is more about like shiny work maybe that's the PR of the industry mm. I don't know what, yeah. what do you well think? I think I remember the time out of which some of Dave's essays came and I look back on it and I think it was mostly just I mean why are people snarky when I'm snarky it's because I'm insecure you know <laughs> right. and it's because I'm somehow uh, in temporary denial of the actual connection that I've had in my life that had nothing to do with snark, you know? Right. So, but also now some of what we call snark has to do with a very reasonable pushback against a culture that's pretty stupid and pretty uh, materialistic. And um, so I, I, I think... Sure, sure. Yeah. Satire I mean, and like, yeah. like, like attacking advertising. And yeah, because that like stuff that. Is, is, has cynical, a cynical element and it's very seductive and it's assumed, it assumes that it should be here selling you shit. Yeah, yeah. But for me, basically, I mean, honestly, just to cut to the chase, I, I when we had our kids, the snark sorted itself out. <laughs> you know, I didn't feel generally snarky. I felt generally blessed and protective and, you know, reverent towards them. Then by association, you could go, oh, that guy has a kid. All right, I know you, you right, know, right. generally. Then you start to say, okay, now what, who are the enemies of my children? Well, corporatism actually is sometimes. Sometimes not, but sometimes yes. Materialism, advertising, the military mindset, all those things. So I think what happened was what might have been a kind of systemic 1970s snark. Right. You know, the man sucks and the man is everybody. You know, that kind of <laughs> right, thing. Right, right, right. Be, it's sorted out. So, like, well, actually, no. You know, this, and even to the level of, I, I, when we had little kids, I worked for this engineering company. And I, at first I was like, oh, God, I work for a corporation, you know. Well, then you get in there and it's like, actually, I work with Jim and Fred and Lynn and, you know, right. they're all in the same boat. Even the managers who come in and talk the corporate shtick, they're in the same boat to a certain extent. I get insurance so my kids can go to the dentist. You know, so again, this idea, we kind of talked about this, but the idea of deconstructing the broad conceptual in favor of the specific is a real powerful thing to do. It takes a little bit of energy. A lot of energy. A lot of energy, man, yeah. Especially right now in our especially culture. Right and again, now. but as you say, like there are legitimate targets of scorn and satire yeah. and plenty of them in American culture right now. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, there's maybe also, uh, and this is a bigger subject, I don't mm -hmm. know how deep we can go into this, but maybe more than ever, 
a mandate to try to be specific in thinking and talking about each other? I think so, you know, because the, the um, it seems to me, because oh, I did a story on the Trump yes, campaign, yes, and I know right. a lot of Trump, a lot of people I love are Trump supporters. So I understand that the idea of blasting them with scorn, because they are being very thoughtless and hurtful to a lot of people. I get that. My question is always, what's the most useful thing? Right. If we're just trying to like get it off our chest, then it's fine. But if, we're, if we have any, even the slightest idea that we might persuade, and I don't think there's a lot of persuasion to be done, but there's some maybe. Yeah. Also, if we have any interest in keeping the tone somewhat human, then I'm kind of thinking mm, that you have to say we're, we can be empathetic and specific and fierce at the same time. And right. actually, actually, that's a pretty good combination. You know, If you think about somebody out there who voted for Trump, and a lot of people vote for, for reasons that you just go, what the, really? <laughs> you know, you didn't really think about it or you didn't. Other people vote for him for intense ideological reasons that I don't even know where they're coming from. But whoever that person is, this is the fiction writer talking now, if I could inhabit his mind for 10 minutes, I'd be his best friend and his worst enemy, maybe both at the same right, time. Right. Whereas if you just imagine somebody, you know, a dickhead, I don't, you know, a yeah, yeah. stupid jack. I almost said jag off the Chicago word, <laughs> but, but you know, I just. But if you if you imagine that, then you're done. You're done. You can, now there's a maybe an element where your fierce scorn actually is very useful. Actually, you know, I mean, sure. you, you draw a line in the sand. So I'm not. I'm not. And then there are like broad political arenas in which yes. you might want to make a salvo like that. Exactly. You know? I, and actually, I think at this point, if you consider yourself part of the resistance, as I do, what I really think is everybody should do it in their own flavor. So right. if you're a satirist, be a, if you're if you're a shouter, be a shouter. If you're a, an empath, be an empath. Uh, I, don't, I'm not, I would never say we should not be scornful. I think sure. that's it does work, you know. But for me, I, I think I want to come out of this with my equanimity intact, and I want to come out of it still loving the people I love, and and maybe more importantly, I want to come out of it as a writer, understanding our country as it actually is. You know, all the all the grief that I felt on election day. Yeah. Well, that's on me, actually. You know. If your dog suddenly bites your balls, you didn't understand your dog properly. <laughs> and that's not the dog's fault, you know. So, so that's why I'm trying to kind of think just as a writer, how can, I, how can I come to understand it better so that it wouldn't be quite as shocking, you know. It might still be very regrettable, but I would be going, oh, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, yeah. No, I relate, I, I, I relate to that insofar as I just think that things are so often more complex than they seem, and yeah. I'm feeling a great deal of you know, a very strong message from people on my side in all this and, uh, you know, that any level of understanding is capitulation. Yes, that's and right. And I think that it's, uh, again, yeah. as you say, there are many ways, many paths yeah. to the mountain, but yeah. but I think it's uh, it's a hard thing to do to stand there and, like, look at the real complexity. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's a very, I mean, I know that's that liberal, I mean, uh, somebody who's left of Gandhi, that liberal thing, which is, I understand you, man. <laughs> it's cool. Let me hold your red hat, you know, your red Trump hat. Right. I, well, that's I, something else. That's Well, that's but, but I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but yeah, yeah. I think that even that's, you know, this idea that if somebody drives a spike through your head, you thank them for the new coat rack, right, you know. Right, 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 right. But so I think actually, when I was with, on the Trump campaign, there were times where you were doing both at once. You were really listening really understanding, and then you were rebutting much more precisely. And, uh, right. and, with, this, and with a feeling of, of sort of mutual affection that I think, if nothing else, makes a doorway. They don't have to walk through it, you know? Yeah. But I know what you mean, and I, and I don't mean, I mean, the, other, the way I sort of counterweight that is to always keep in mind that people who he's humiliated, you know? He's vast, every, every Muslim in the country must feel like shit right now. Yeah. Every immigrant, every woman. I mean, so, so for me, part of it is to keep those people 
in mind as a, you know, that is not, that simple cause and effect. Those people feel worse and they feel endangered because of what that guy did. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. As you said, it's possible to be present with another person and still fierce at the same time. I, like you yeah. can hold both of those oh, yeah. contradictory ideas. And in, in the mind Eastern traditions, a lot of the a lot of the sort of teaching tradition is this fierce. Like I mean, they will do outrageous things to get you to pull your head out of your ass. You know. Yeah, you're because, you're grounded largely in Zen. I see. No, to it's Tibet, a Tibetan. Oh, tradition. Tibetan. But again, I'm not, I don't. I wouldn't speak for that. But okay. I know just in general, in, oh, in all these. I was the whacking on the head. Oh, but that's Zen. Yeah, really, yeah. but that's. <laughs> I mean, but there's a lot of things. This kind of crazy wisdom, where you know, given the fact that the job is to is to get you to disconnect from your ego, right. and it can take many many lifetimes. There are these great masters who will come in and just do outrageous things. But the idea is they're so spiritually advanced that they know just what will get your head out of your ass. Right. And if they wanted to be nice about it, it, the analogy would be like if a baby's crawling towards a light socket, do you go, oh, baby, that might not be bad. You know, you grab <laughs> that fucker by the diaper. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this is a good point for us to transition to, to the other the sure. surprise clips. Um, this is on Mark Goodman, who is a sort of tech expert guy. Mm -hmm talking about cyborgs mm. and medical implant hacking. I'm for it. <laughs> a subset of the Internet of Things is a whole category of medical devices. We have wearables, things like the Fitbit. We have embeddables. We have implantables, things like um, diabetic pumps, for example, uh, internet-enabled uh, defibrillators implanted in our chest, so uh, implantable defibrillators, pacemakers, and the like. We have brain-computer interface, and now we're even creating pills that are internet-enabled so that you can swallow a pill, goes into your stomach, the pill's computer is powered by your stomach acid, and it can control the, le the release of medicine, how much medicine is released over time. So, we are slowly but surely becoming cyborgs. Uh, I know it sounds like science fiction, but if you think about it, most people are walking around with their cell phone in their pocket or in their hand 24-7. When people go to sleep, they put it on their, nines, on their nightstand. So slowly but surely, computers are replacing our own cognitive abilities to an extent. When I was younger, I used to know by memory the phone numbers of all of my friends because there were no cell phones with all these little address books. Today, we just automatically dump that data into our cell phone and just call it up on demand, the same with our address book and the like. So that cell phone, though currently outside of our body, means that's kind of the first step towards us uh, theoretic theoretically becoming cyborgs. The next step, of course, will be implanting these devices into us. There are people, uh, several researchers, including one out of Cambridge in the UK, that have implanted RFID chips underneath their skin for years. These people are called body modders, and they will go out there and use those RFID chips to open up the uh, security door in their office place to pay for goods and services. So you can actually do that now. So there is a whole movement of people who are quite interested. It's sort of underground these days. It's, if you, it's sort of the next generation of piercing, right? There's a whole community around piercing and tattooing. And the next generation of that is to implant these computer devices in our skin, under our skin, that give us new forms of senses. For example, magnets. Whole movement of people put magnets under their skin, and they have now created a sixth sense that the rest of us don't have, which is that they can actually explore magnetism in our environment.
there's a great American writer named Tom McGuane, and the, at the beginning of one of his books, there's a, an epigraph that I, I always misquote, but the way I remember it is uh, something like, man is magnificently well-made and enthusiastically lives the life that is being lived, you know? So part of me thinks, yeah, that was, for sure, of course. If the potential exists, we'll, we'll do it. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, then my mind goes to say, well, does it, does it change anything about our humanity? And I kind of think not, you know? I mean, if, if the, right. this thing we've been talking about with your, the big human problem is that we think we're separate from everything, yeah. but actually we're not, and we think we're permanent, we're not, probably will always be a, an issue. The only thing that I think is, you know, in the way that technology does, the idea of implanting a chip in your arm is gonna seem so trite in five years, or 10 years. And I would imagine what we'll be able to do is go in to the brain and micromanage that. that that's an interesting thing then, because yeah. let's say that someone said to you, you know, come have a, a, little, a little operation and I can make you the best day in your life, the most happiest, the happiest you've ever been, I can give you that every day. Right. Do you do it or not? You know? Well, and so, and yeah, and I think about this stuff a lot because I think my default, you know, I, have a, I think my default is a little bit of a like pessimistic, humanistic slant on this, which mm -hmm. I know is totally biased, you know, mm. where I'm just like, ah, no, like humans are supposed to be messy, let's not fix everything, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. But I guess what concerns me is that that we're getting to where we don't even have the ability to evaluate mm. what is happening and whether or not it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, this stuff about the addictiveness of our devices, yeah. you know, we're all walking around like staring at our phones. I don't think we're even remotely able to get the big picture yeah. on what's going on with us. Yeah, and that, and that I think, I, I, as a late adapter, I can guarantee it, <laughs> it, it alters brain chemistry. I mean, my reading, my reading comprehension dropped within the first two weeks I got a cell phone. Oh yeah? I, I mean, no, and I knew that from baselining against certain texts that I always Just read. Just because of attention or whatever. Something, I don't know, I don't yeah. actually know. I think uh, it's attention, yeah. I think yeah. it's that, that idea that the, new, that the next thrill is close, you know, that kind of thing. Right, right. I, you know, part, part of my, I learned this from Chekhov, actually, reading Chekhov. Okay. I think one of the highest states of mind we can occupy is when we have a couple, let's say two fully articulated, beautifully rendered truths contradicting each other that are hanging in the mind at the same time. Yes. So for example, with this stuff, I think you're absolutely right. We, we have lost our ability to, uh, I mean, these devices are, they, they interfere. They interfere with what human beings have been doing for a thousand years. I agree with that. On the other hand, the holy phrase, on the other hand, that's always been the case. There's always been some technology that was messing with us. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. I'm in favor of what we might call a meditative stance, which means do we, okay, what's the sacred? The sacred is, I think, First, having some idea of what the highest state you've ever been in, mm. and just always remembering that you were once there, mm. and then that you're kind of va vaguely trying to get back to it. That's one thing. The second thing is this idea of saying, every so often, I'm gonna take a moment to uh, evaluate. I'm gonna get off devices for a week and just see what happens. Not judge it, but just see. If, if you see, in fact, that your reading comprehension goes up and you're happier, it doesn't mean you can't go back, you can, but you've sort of uh, taken a second to look at stuff. And the reason right. I say it's meditative is because in me meditation and in prayer and in writing, that's kind of what you're doing. You're sort of saying, let me slow things down a little bit. Let me see how much of this world is my mind, how much of it is world, how much of it is. So just to right. sort of take that evaluative second, that seems to me like good human hygiene in whatever form you do it. Right, right, yeah. No, that makes sense. In part, it's like, obeying those instincts that are saying to yourself like, well, there's something here that I'm not entirely comfortable with. Yeah. And then as you said, yeah, like 
knowing what you want, like what is it that is the best of that life has yes. to offer? Yeah. For example, the experience of you know writing when it's going really well is my environment and the way that I'm living conducive, conducive to, to producing that, that thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just I mean it's funny. Just that little that little second of going. Wait a minute. What am I? What am I doing? <laughs> right. It's pretty pretty good. And, <laughs> right. But but at the pace that we go, you know, it, it's pretty hard to, to get. Yeah, there. there's the fear that humanity is increasingly going to be trapped within bubbles that it's not even aware yeah. of or whatever. But you know that may or may not be the case. You the know? funny thing is that a lot of the materialist, what I call the materialist project, which I think is a corporatist. Not it's not a conspiracy, but it's sort of just happening to us. Right. Somehow that thing it causes us to engage in activities with actually, which actually reinforce the self. Yes. You know, which is weird. I don't. It's almost because like it's the, to their benefit that we be addicted. Somehow, to the almost things. like the Borg. It doesn't know that it's doing that, but it yeah, does yeah. it sort of. You know. But the other thing that this this uh, made me think is I has a story called Escape from Spiderhead. Okay. And in that story, that the shtick was that they could give you a drug that would alter your verbal patterns. Right. And I really like that thought that, you know, if we figured out brain cyborgism and uh, could increase your level of articulateness by 40%, <laughs> right. you're a different person. Or decrease it. Or decrease it. Yeah, yeah. And we all know that from when we're tired, you know, you get less articulate and your world shrinks a little bit, you know. So that's a, that's a question. If somebody but then could, who knows? You become, you know, three times more articulate and then you become four times worse at listening. Yeah, no, exa exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. You become a pundit. <laughs> <laughs> the worst yeah. of all fates. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's see what the next one is and go somewhere completely different. Oh my goodness, this is very much in line with what we were talking about, and you'll know this guy, Robert Thurman. Oh yeah. Love your enemies. The Buddhist psychology tradition in particular, and the Asian psychologies in general, and actually the ancient Christian monastic psychologies do have a strong theory and a strong practice, really, uh, of overcoming bitterness, hatred, resentment, vengefulness, and so forth carrying a little further from Moses's already restraining idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you don't take a leg or a life for an eye, you know, or a life for a tooth, you know, just another tooth, which was already a step forward from the old vengeance idea of tribal attitude. And, uh, and Jesus's and Buddha's greater idea of really love your enemies and how to unpack that in a modern setting. And um, people get nervous about it because they think if you love your enemies, you're, it means you're going to cave to them, you're going to be a martyr, you're going to invite them to come and destroy you and just be a masochist and so forth. And that is not at all what it means. Love means, in the Asian psychological term, and I think really in any term, means the wish for the beloved happiness, to want to make the one you love happy. That's what love really is. It isn't really greed and wish to possess, although some kinds of love tend to, tend to mix with that of the egotistical person. The reason someone is your enemy is they think you're preventing their happiness. Somehow you have something they want, you're in their way, whatever it is. The world isn't big enough for the both of you type of attitude. And so they want to be your enemy because they're unhappy. And they think by getting rid of you, they'll be happy. So if they were happy already without messing with you, they might be wanting to leave you alone because it's no fun to go attack people. It's like it's, it's an exercise, you know. It's not like giving a caress or receiving one. So, so loving your enemies is actually practical advice. And Martin Luther King, for example, when he went back the second time to that bridge in Birmingham, uh, John Lewis says that he, he was advised by his friends, come on, like, don't get into how we're going to love those guys, who, those cops who are sticking dogs and hoses and beating us and jailing us and torturing us. 
And uh, then Martin Luther said, uh, no. Uh, Martin Luther King said, no, it's too bitter a burden to bear hatred and resentment. We do love them. Of course, we oppose them and we are against them and we don't want them to behave like that. But we don't hate them. That's just a ridiculous waste of our energy. And in a way, you can say that being an enemy who has hurt you has already hurt you. If you go around nursing hatred and vindictiveness and how to get back at them, you're hurting yourself. When you oppose your enemy, who someone, and, and by, by saying your enemy, someone they think they're your enemy. Hopefully, if you love your enemy, you have no enemy. But if you, when you oppose that person, which you can do, you can have tough love, you can have fierce compassion. And you, when they sense that you're doing it because you want their betterment, actually, because it's not good for them to be mean to you and so on, then actually it has a little different edge to it. And for example, if you're trying to get them to see reason, there's a better chance they'll be able to listen to you when they don't feel the weight of hatred and a destructive vibration toward them coming through the speech. You know, what's in the style and the energy of the speech. Your motivation will make it more successful. Well, I think, you know, this, the, by the way, the book I mentioned earlier, Our Precision Mind, is Organ Chowong Rinpoche. Okay. Chowong, yeah, sorry. Okay. But in that book, it's interesting. I'd never understood it before, but as uh, Mr. Thurman was saying, love means you wish happiness for your enemy. And in this book, it says, com now, compassion means you wish that your enemies won't suffer. So then, right. you know, if you start from the assumption that I think it's true, everybody wants to be happy. Nobody gets up and goes, I hope today sucks, I right. hope I'm miserable. Start with that, and then you say, okay, if I just forget all this usual way of thinking, do I want some random guy out on the street to suffer? No, I, why, why would I? Then your compassion means you really hope that he won't. So if that, now if that person is a, a Muslim who feels degraded by public discourse, you don't want that, right. of course not. If, but here's a more complicated thing. If that person is a guy who's a rabid hater of Muslims, yeah. he's also suffering. So can you live in, can you proceed in such a way that keeps both those sufferings in mind and says, I really don't want you, you guys want to be happy, right? You right. Know? Now, that, the thing is, that's right. For me, you know, <laughs> as a professional talker, I can say that. Now, the problem is, and this is in a lot of the, the Buddhist texts I've read, is thinking is one thing, moving that knowledge down into your body is another. So I can say that, I'm right. at the airport yesterday and there's a woman who does a thing where she kind of edges into the line and this other woman starts mouthing off and instantly I'm like, oh, and I'm trying to take sides, but I don't know enough to take sides, but I can feel that little wolf in me like, oh, I'm so pissed. I don't know who, I don't know who is I'm pissed at yet. I don't know why the wolf has that accent, but. So in other words, for all, for all of my talking about this, it's just to take the drop of a hat to make an enemy and start projecting negatively. So I think it's, right. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, good talking about th that I've heard and I've done and I think about these ideas, but maybe what we don't do, this may go back to your earlier point, what we don't do enough is think about how, how actually do you embody those things so that it's not a decision. I don't think it's a decision that you make to be loving. By that time, it's too late. You know, right. somebody runs over your foot. You go, oh yeah, I'll have to be loving. You already got the guy by the neck. You know, right, right, right. so I think one thing I regret in my life is that it's, I'm getting older and I haven't spent enough time trying to. And there are ways. I mean, that's what these spiritual traditions are about: moving the knowledge out of your head and into your body. That seems to be the most important thing. So that the so that the immediate reaction is not yeah. is not negative a negative one, but actual like that that seems almost impossible to me to imagine someone cutting in front of me in line right. and my reaction toward them somehow encompassing 
both compassion toward them and probably a desire for them not yeah. to be in front of but me. But it goes back to something you said, which is I think you can break <laughs> these things into, you. there's an impulse your body has. Right. Do you take a split second to notice it? Do you take a split second to divorce it from your essential selfhood? So even as I was doing that, I was like, uh, oh, I'm, I see what I'm doing. You know, you, yeah, you yeah, notice yeah, what yeah. you're doing. And then it, it, sort of it sort of dissipates the energy a little bit if you see that you're doing that, you know. Or like sometimes, you know, you, you'll, right. uh, I'll go to talk to a high school class and they're a little bit indifferent to me, you right. know. Well, your first thing is, oh, these kids, you know. But then you can, you can be aware of that impulse and go, oh, yeah, I'm having that impulse. Is it true? Right. Not really. There's a lot of reasons for them to appear indifferent, you know. So I think there's that. But, it's, but I, I think the idea that we could actually... Oh, oh the other thing is, in, like with our kids, you know, your kid does something naughty. Yeah. You don't get enraged because you have a baseline understanding of the person that's complicated. So I think in the same way, if we... It, it really helps me to think everybody wants to be happy. You know, and that, if, if, you, if we start believing that, eventually it colors the way the emotions rise up in you, you know. I think there's this fear, and I think it maybe comes from some, something in our culture. We value immediate action. We value, mm. we see some kind of integrity in, you know, maybe the John Wayne response of, right. like, or, you know, Indiana Jones, like the guy is waving the scimitar and he just pulls shoots out his him, gun yeah. and shoots him. You know, yeah. we, we like that that's definitive and, you know, whatever. And so we don't want to equivocate. Yeah. And so, the, you know, that, the, that idea of taking a second to actually, like, then you might not react fast right. enough and right. you might not do justice or you, something. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything, that, that idea. I, I guess, yeah. yeah. But I, I was We're thinking, so afraid of that. I you think. know, I, I made that kindness speech and that was, it was short, and, you know, so it kind of raised the question, well, what do you, how do you do it or what, what are you talking about? Mm. And I often thought, you know, for me, one of the big struggles is to shut up sometimes, you know, to, mm. to not, first of all, to not think too forcibly of yourself as, as the kindness dude or a kind person. <laughs> because then you end up, you know, the, the, I always think if you go, you go into a coffee shop, <laughs> go into a coffee shop and the barista has been crying, what do you do? I don't know. I mean, what, the thing is, now my auto response is, are you okay? That could Which be may the, be the worst oh, thing. Oh, yeah. probably is, yeah, you know, because yeah. then she's going to cry more. Or she, you know, or uh, you can become like totally self-righteous against people who are not being kind and then turn into a That's one of the most asshole. fun things that you yeah. could ever do. So, <laughs> so I think that, so then in a way, if you start with kindness, then you say, okay, well, in that situation, what more, what do I need to know? Well, you have to know which barista, you know, and, and one of the ways yeah, you yeah. know that is by being there with, with your thought thing cranked way down so you're actually taking in more data, mm. then you might know what to do. But I think for me, I just personally, a pretty good default is just shut, the, shut up. You know, yeah. the situation was that way. You came in, you didn't make it worse. It'll work its way out. She's an intelligent human being. Right. But for me, I've got a bit of a, as a former Catholic, a bit of a savior complex. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, it's, I've got to somehow make it better. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. No, but maybe maybe there's not always a thing to do. Yeah, exactly. maybe, yeah. maybe we're not supposed to always know what to do. Yeah, because that's a form of ego to think that, <laughs> that, you know, the world is not fully activated until we showed up. You know? <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. You, you may all live, and now I'm here. George Saunders, um, you've got a busy day ahead of you, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go on well, your way. But thank you so much for being on this. Have such a wonderful this. conversation. It's very energizing. So thank uh, you. Uh, the the same times a thousand. Thank right. you. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I've said this a few times recently, but you can email me at jason at bigthink.com. I'd love to hear from you if you're new to listening to the show or if you've been listening for a while. Anything you'd like to share with me about what you're enjoying, what you're thinking about, 
it's really good to get to know the people who are out there and enjoying this even just a little bit. So I've heard from a few of you so far and I'd love to hear from more. Again, that's Jason at BigThink.com. And we'll be back next week with another completely different in-depth and surprising conversation here on Think Again. Thank you.